Thanks for joining us. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that this church would be newly awakened this morning to the joy of knowing you and experiencing you and finding fellowship with you. And Lord, I pray that we would be awakened to the joy of fellowship with you through prayer. I pray, God, that as, as I preach this morning, that we would come to see prayer not as a task or a duty, but as life itself, and that it would become as natural to us as the breaths that we take. Lord, I pray that you would turn our eyes to you. Amen. All right. How are we doing this morning? Tired? Good? A little quiet? All right. Very good. Well, we are in the third and final week of our series uh, on knowing God. And this morning, we'll be talking about knowing God through prayer. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to John chapter 10. I'm going to be bouncing around through John quite a bit this morning, so you're welcome to jump along with me, or if I'm jumping too fast, you're welcome to just listen. Knowing God is absolutely essential for true life, and prayer is absolutely essential for knowing God. This message is going to have two parts. First, on the, in the first half, we're going to look briefly at what it is to know God, as well as the role of prayer in knowing God. And then for the second half, I'm going to share some thoughts on how we can practice prayer in a way that brings us closer to fellowshipping with God. So first, what is it to know God? Now, when I say know, I'm talking about the sort of knowledge that involves experience. So who in here has ever been to the Grand Canyon? Let me see your hands. We've got a few. Awesome. The Grand Canyon. It's pretty grand, right? So if I were to ask, how big is the Grand Canyon? Somebody could do some research and they could look up and they could find for me the average depth, the average width. They could, they could figure out the area, maybe even the volume that would fit within the Grand Canyon, how long it runs. And that would give me, in, in some sense, an idea of how large the Grand Canyon is. But what I appreciate the knowledge of how big the Grand Canyon is in the same way that you who've been there appreciate it? Probably not. If I were to ask you how big is the Grand Canyon, you who've been there, you would probably respond in something like, huge. Like it's just, it's big. And I, I can't even describe it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about knowing God, that sort of knowledge. Knowledge and experience. Not just book smarts, not just reading about God in a library, but experiencing God. So the sort of knowledge that, that is aware of what the Bible says about him, that, that knows him through his word, but at the same time experiences him. And we cannot do that apart from prayer. But back to my first point, what it is to know God. So in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus summarizes his purpose for coming to earth. And this is a theme that's throughout the Gospel of John, but I like the way he puts it here. He's talking uh, to his disciples, and he's talking about the people that he's going to save. And he says this, The thief, referring to false teachers or false messiahs that came before Jesus, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to bring us life. 
Many of you know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. From this we can see that because Jesus came to bring us life, somehow we're, in God's sight we're not alive. We're not alive because he's coming to, uh, to bring us life. At least we're not, we don't have the sort of abundant life that God wants for us. So the Apostle Paul calls us dead in our sin apart from Jesus, living but not alive. Jesus is saying here, forget everything you thought you knew about what it means to be alive because I have come to bring you true life. Up to this point, you've never truly lived. And that's the guy who made us. That is, that is the Lord of all creation. If anyone should know what life is, it's him, amen? From this we can see that because uh, because Jesus came to bring us life, we, we don't have that abundant life that he has made us for. In other words, all of the things that you've loved about your life look out of style and obsolete when compared to the abundant life of Christ. So what is this abundant life? In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying uh, right before he's about to go off to be crucified for the sins of the world. And he's praying to God, and he says this in his prayer. He says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. True life, as God intended it, is found in an active, personal relationship with God. What that means is that if you have never known God, then you have never lived in the way that God has intended life to be. It means that if you're a Christian and you do not practice fellowship with God on a daily basis, then on a daily basis you are living as a dead man or a dead woman. If you are not walking in fellowship with God moment by moment, then every one of those moments is a moment where you are lying on the ground in God's sight, dead. Take anyone with all the wealth, all the fame, all the power, the affection of everyone around them, whether it's a, a, someone with all the wealth of Bill Gates or, or, or Jeff Bezos or whoever, God would look at them, and if they don't know him, he would feel pity for them. He would call them a walking corpse. Jesus would look at the deadness in their eyes and be moved with compassion. He would feel sorry for them. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So whatever other ambition you have, whatever hopes and dreams for your life should, ought to exist in the shadow of the one great purpose of knowing God. The reason you get up in the morning, the reason you work, why you eat, why you breathe, all of it to know God, because that is life. And apart from that, there is only death. That is the word of the Lord. Amen? So therein we find our definition. Eternal life is knowing God, or knowing God is eternal life, the abundant life that we were made for. Because knowing God is eternal life, we should not think that knowing God is just some task that we do. But instead, we should think of it as an extension of life itself. When's the last time you thought about, man, I really ought to breathe more? Maybe if you were on a run, I don't know. But breathing is a task that you need to do in order to live. And I would hope that for all of us, it's so natural that you don't even need to think about it. In the same way, knowing God is so integrally uh, related to what it is to live in the life that God intended for us that it should be something that we do naturally without even thinking about it. Living in fellowship with God should be this natural daily reality. So look with me at John chapter 15, 
verses 4 and 5. And Jesus is, again, talking to his disciples, and he says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus is life. Apart from him there is only death. We are meant, we are made, we are built and designed for constant connection, constant fellowship with God. The same way that branches are connected to a vine. When the branches are separated from the vine, they wither and die. They're no good. We are, we are nothing apart from God, but in him we find our deepest, most fundamental purpose is to know God. We cannot bear the fruit that comes from being disciples of Jesus who are filled with eternal life apart from knowing God. Abiding in Jesus should be as natural to us as it is for a branch to be connected to a vine. So the message here is that we would cling to Christ as though our lives depended on it, because they do. So then what does it mean to abide? To abide means to remain, to stay with him. So if you were in a room with Jesus, it would mean don't leave the room. Don't go away. Don't walk away. Stay with him. Stay near. Jesus' disciples followed him everywhere. When Jesus would go off to pray, they'd be looking around. Where is Jesus? What, what do we do? Where is he? We need to find him. When he sent them off in a boat, they, they ended up scared, frightened by a storm until he came to them and, and was with them. Don't leave the room. Satan uses tools of temptation and shame, false promises, whatever he can to get us to walk away from fellowship with God, to get us out of the presence of our God. Jesus tells us to remain in fellowship with him in the same way like Joshua would linger in the tabernacle after Moses was done speaking with God. Joshua would remain in the presence of God. It should be so natural to us that we don't even think twice about doing it. And so that's really what I have time to say about knowing God. There's so much more we could say, but that's what we have time for. And so now, what is the role of prayer in knowing God? How does prayer help us experience this abundant life that Jesus came to give us? Let's go to John chapter 14, and here's the scene. Jesus is having one of his final conversations with his disciples. These are guys that he, he came to, and for no perceivable reason... He chose them to follow him, to be his disciples, to learn from him. And over the past three years of his ministry, these guys had their lives turned upside down by Jesus. They had followed him and seen him do miraculous healings, cast out demons. They'd seen him do supernatural, like nature miracles, like walking on water, bringing the dead back to life, multiplying food to feed thousands of people. They had seen Jesus do so much, and as well as heard just these amazing teachings by Jesus like they'd never heard before, that he stumped all of the religious rulers in the day. No one could answer him. No one could, could out-argue him or, or prove wrong anything that he was saying. So over the course of these three years, Jesus had come to be their God, but they'd also come to know Jesus as their friend. This was a guy that they did fellowship with every single day for three years. And now Jesus is talking to them and he's preparing them for his physical departure from earth. They're about to say goodbye to their closest friend. So you can read with me 
John chapter 14, verses 16 to 20, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Up to this point, Jesus' disciples had experienced physical, in-person fellowship with him. But now that he's leaving, they're about to have to transition to fellowship with him through Zoom. No, a spiritual fellowship, right? Jesus is going to be with them in spirit, but not physically, not in person. And so that's what he's preparing them for. And so what we see here is that God set up his plan for redemption in such a way that until the day he returns, we are made for daily fellowship with him and must abide in him in daily fellowship with him. But we cannot do that with in-person fellowship. And so instead he has made us to have, he's given us spiritual fellowship with him. And in the replacement of Jesus in the flesh, he has given us, every believer, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to leave you, and you're going to have to learn how to keep fellowship with me in my physical absence. And so to take the place of my physical presence, I am giving you the Holy Spirit, who will be with you and in you everywhere you go. Now we can ask, is that a downgrade? Wouldn't we rather be with Jesus in person and we could say, on, one, on the one hand, yeah, I would. I'd rather not have to live by faith, but to be able to walk by sight and see my God every day and be able to be with him and hear him speak to me every single day. That would be awesome. But on the other hand, the Holy Spirit accomplishes and has accomplished for the church far more than Jesus ever did in person over the past 2,000 years. Look at, look at what it says. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' disciples can go and... and through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' disciples can all go their separate ways and they can all still have personal fellowship with God. So when it comes to fellowship, there's a way that the gospel can spread, the church can go forward, and yet everyone can, everyone can still experience that daily fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. How? The Holy Spirit guides us. He helps us understand the Bible. He convicts us of sin in our lives. He directs our attention to God's will, generally and sometimes even specifically. He also prays for us. Paul says in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's huge. God is in you, praying to God through the sacrifice that God made for you on the cross. That's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. And that's your daily reality, is that God is in you, guiding you, leading you, and he is praying for you. you don't, we don't even know everything that we ought to pray to God, but God does, and he is in us, praying for us on our behalf. That means God is on your side. He is working with you. He is for you to bring you closer to him. My point in all of this is that our fellowship with God on this earth during this time is spiritual, but God desires us to have the same degree of fellowship that his disciples had while he was with them in person. He's, in, this, in this scene, we see he's preparing them, saying, you've been with me, and you must continue 
to find fellowship with me, but you will do that through the Holy Spirit. And really, the, one of the primary ways you're going to do that is through prayer. Have you ever tried to have a relationship with someone without ever speaking to them? No communication whatsoever. It doesn't work. Relationships are a two-way street. It takes both people interacting with each other. And so reading the Bible, hearing from God, is absolutely essential to knowing God. But in the same way, prayer, us speaking back to God, is absolutely essential to knowing God. And, and we have the Holy Spirit in us, helping us, in us, in you, helping you, with you, communicating on a level that transcends language. Like, that's just this beautiful picture. So last week we talked about Scripture. This week we're talking about prayer, talking to God. Last week was more about us hearing from God, and so this week we're talking more about God hearing from us. Uh, and then there's one other practice. There's, there's other ways that we can find fellowship with God through the body of Christ, through other spiritual disciplines. One that I think often goes with prayer is meditation, or sitting and listening from God. Sometimes you can meditate over the, as, and pray and meditate over as you read the Bible and listen to God's word through that. Or other times, there are other ways you can just meditate and listen to hear something from God. But I'm not going to be talking about meditation. I'm going to be talking specifically about prayer. But over the rest of this sermon, many of the points that I share will apply to meditation as well. And so if I talk about going off in a quiet place and praying to God, it can also include praying and, and being quiet and listening and, and reflecting and memorizing scripture and all those sorts of things. So with that, I want to spend the rest of this message getting practical by looking at four characteristics of prayer that will help us experience fellowship with God. Uh, And that's the abundant life that he made us for. So essentially, this is four ways to live, four ways to experience life, four characteristics of how we pray. Because we can pray wrongly. We see Jesus in Matthew 6 saying, don't pray as the Pharisees pray. Don't pray as, as these these self-righteous people pray who do it in front of other people to just get people to hear you. And probably many of us have done that before or at least seen other people who they get in a prayer group, they get in a prayer circle, and they start praying in a way that it's just clear that they're just trying to sound good. And that's just not what prayer is. It's not about the people around us. It's communication between us and God. So four characteristics of prayer that help us experience fellowship with God. Number one, we find fellowship with God when we pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. Notice, he doesn't say start praying. He says, don't stop. Don't stop communicating with God. Like I said before, knowing God is absolutely essential for true life. And prayer is absolutely essential for knowing God. We cannot experience that life outside of prayer, outside of communicating with him. Because life is found in fellowship with God, and prayer is essential for that life, prayer, therefore, is, is so important for us. To modify the words of Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, get busy praying or get busy dying. Think about that. Think about how essential prayer is to your life. It should be like breathing. Breathing. This life is a fight for fellowship with God. Satan is utilizing every weapon in his arsenal to to break our fellowship with God. And so let's use every weapon that God has given us in our arsenal to defend and guard that fellowship with God every single day. Practice his presence. Let your life be a continual conversation with God. 
We do that by practicing his presence, embracing the reality that God is always with you. Look for him everywhere. Look for him in every moment. Ask the question, where is God right now in this moment? Is he here in the room with me? I think about Moses uh, walking and, and then he passes by this burning bush and it's through this burning bush that God speaks to him. And he says, this is a holy place. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And I think, what does it mean to be in a holy place? The reality that God, the Holy Spirit, is living in each and every one of us. Everywhere that you go is a holy place. Amen? Everywhere that you carry the presence of God in you is a holy place. He is with you everywhere. You are never alone. People make horror movies about how you think you're alone, but you're not really alone. And just to backpedal a little bit there, this isn't a horror movie. God is great. He's your loving Father. He wants to be with you. He wants to help you. But He is always with you. You're never alone. Everywhere that you go, you you can practice and experience life through fellowship with God. Don't leave the room. In Exodus 33, right after it has that bit about Joshua lingering in the presence of God, there's a conversation recorded where Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, I don't want Israel to move from where it is if your presence is not going to accompany us. We can pray the same thing to God every single morning. I did it this morning. We can say, don't send me into this day if your presence will not go with me. God, grant me a continual uh, acknowledgement and awareness that you are here with me and let me have and experience a continual conversation with you. Pray like you breathe. Let it be so natural in your life that it becomes an unconscious response. So you don't even have to think about praying. You just start praying, God, help her. God, help them. God, help me in this area. God, I, I pray for this. God, thank you for this or for that. All these things that we can say and thank God for every single moment of our day. I say this so that we would get it that God is with us everywhere. And so therefore we can experience true life with him everywhere. Number two, we find fellowship with God when we pray like a child. In Matthew 18, verse three, Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And that means we need to humble ourselves and embrace a relationship with our Father in heaven. We cannot try to be independent. Your independence died the moment that you accepted Christ, that you said, God, I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. I want your will for my life. As we humble ourselves like a child in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, we should also pray to him like a child. What do I mean by that? Who in the room has young children? I don't have young children. I just want you to raise your hand. Okay, so imagine if your daughter or your son went and found a notice in the mail that said that your electric bill was months overdue and if you don't take immediate action, your power is about to be shut off. Would you want her to try to deal with that herself? Would you want her to think, oh man, she's lying awake that night. What am I going to do? How are we going to find this money? And then the next day she goes out, she starts selling lemonade or whatever it is at, you know, 50 cents a glass, trying to raise money, and inevitably she fails and the power goes off. Whether for out of love for your daughter or out of love for your electricity, you wouldn't want that, amen? You wouldn't want the power to be shut off. In the same way, God does not want us to try to handle the problems that are greater than us on our own. He made us to be dependent on him. Do you understand how powerful 
your heavenly Father is. There's no problem in your life that he cannot resolve instantly. His answer may not always be the one that we want, but everything that he does, he is doing for our glory and for, for, for his glory and for our good. He knows what we need more than we do. He created us. Why would he not know everything that we need? Jesus says this about prayer in Matthew 7. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's humble ourselves about our problems and run to our dad in prayer. Amen? Number three. We find fellowship with God when we pray ugly. So I'm 15 at a youth conference, right? And after the sermon, I just realize just how arrogant and selfish I have been for my entire life with my life, my time. I've not given it to God. I've not surrendered it to God. I've been attempting to follow God for a while now. I believe at that point I'd been a believer for a while, and yet, there were so many ways in my life that I was so arrogant, so selfish, so self-centered. My, my world revolved around me. And that, after that sermon, I realized that my world revolves around Christ. And I was shocked. I realized I had been sitting in the throne of God on my heart. And I was like, that cannot be. And so I was broken and so during the closing worship, I walked forward in the aisle down to the front in front of the stage and knelt and prayed. They'd given an invitation for, for people to come forward and be prayed over if they wanted. And so I was there, and I knelt, and I prayed, and I'm, I'm there on my knees like this, and I am bent over, and I just start sobbing. And we're talking, we're talking drops of tears just flowing from my head. We're talking snot just going out, like all of it, just falling in glops from my face into the carpet. And then one staff person comes and prays over me for a few minutes, and then after a while she leaves and another guy comes and prays over me, and after a while he leaves and a third comes. And pretty soon, worship is over, and everybody leaves to go to their discussion groups, and I'm still there, just on the ground, just bent over, just sobbing. And when I finally get up, I look around, and there's only two adults in the room just cleaning up some stuff in the background. Because all the people who prayed over people had to go and lead their discussion groups. And these two people were probably like, well, we probably shouldn't just leave this kid alone. But I don't want to mess with that either. <laughs> and so I'm just there. And when I get up, I had been there probably at least 25 minutes. When I get up, in the carpet, there is a wet spot that is this big. That is just tears and snot. Like if you sat on it, it would get your clothes wet. <laughs> we find fellowship with God when we pray ugly. I won't use a specific verse for this one, but why do you think people in the Bible are always going off to pray in some secret place? It's so people don't have to see that, right? So other people, they don't have to see that. So I got, I've got other stories like this. At a men's retreat at Mosaic, I'm praying for my best friend's dying dad, and I am out in the middle of the woods, not on some trail, in the middle of the woods, lying prostrate, just, just begging God, to have mercy, to heal my friend's dad. And I get up and I'm just covered with dirt. We pray ugly. My point is this. When you pray to God, pray like no one's around. Passionately, unreservedly, letting your guard down, losing all self-awareness and focusing solely on the presence of God. 
Now, if you're in a prayer meeting, maybe have some self-awareness. Like, you'll be a better prayer partner. That's good. But there's, it's so important that we save room in our lives, in our prayer lives, to pray like no one else is around. To pray ugly. The best way to pray like no one's around is to find a place where no one is around. Amen? Jesus says in Matthew 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. This isn't the only way to pray, but there are hard times in life that are going to require us to pray ugly. When we are broken, when we're at the end of ourselves, when we just need to let it all out, and we need to be able to pray like no one else is around, like no one else is watching. Uh, my senior year of college, I'm living in a cramped apartment on campus with a roommate. The apartment is so small that like, there's no room you can go to be by yourself. The oven is so small that there's four burners all right next to each other, but you can't fit four pots or pans next to each other on them because they're just right next to each other. That's how small this apartment is. And so I'm like, I need to find a place where I can go and be alone to pray. And I end up going into various study rooms in the libraries, private study rooms where I can close the door and turn out the lights and just pray to God. And later on, they started to have um, specific rooms dedicated to prayer, prayer rooms. And they would put like little mats in there too. I don't know, like whatever religion you had um, to pray. And, And so I would go in there late at night and no one would be around and I would pray. But That's what I had to do to find a place to be alone to pray. But I think it's so important that we can find a place where we can go and pray alone and pray ugly. God loves when we come to him messy. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He became a naked mess on the cross for you. That was your mess that he went to the cross for. And he took it on to himself in your place so that you could be clean and come before God and be with God for eternity. So why would he care? He expects that you would come to a messy. He expects that. He knows. He came to save us from that. He's not demanding anything from you, so don't wait to get cleaned up to pray to God, but pray ugly. I, when I think about all of the time in my life that I have wasted when I am feeling distant from God, when I am feeling deeply ashamed about my life and about myself, and I just run to distractions, to things to try to make myself feel better or just forget about the shame that I'm feeling rather than just bending my knees and coming before my God in prayer and saying, God, I'm sorry. God, help me. God, I need you. Like that, every time I do that, that just transforms my heart. But it can be so difficult to do that. But it's important then that we recognize that when we pray ugly, we can find fellowship with our God in any moment, confessing our sins, coming to him messy. Amen? Number four, we find fellowship with God when we pray boldly and submissively. I was reading through John 14 through 17, and I was getting ready for this message, and I was struck by Jesus' repetition of one point. So if you look in John 14, chapter 13, uh, sorry, John chapter 14, verse 13, he says this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John chapter 16, verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing 
in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. For many Christians, I think these are some of the hardest verses in the Bible to believe. Amen? I was reading these, and I was like, yeah, I get it. I read the second one. Yeah, I get it. By the time I got to the third one, I was like, whoa. Okay, clearly I have not been paying attention to what Jesus is saying here because I am taking this for granted and not really weighing the reality and the implications of these verses. I don't often pray this way. Why don't we ask more of God? Why don't we pray more boldly than we do? I think that at some point, most of us in the room have read a verse like this, and we've prayed and we've asked God for something, and we didn't get it. And so the immediate response is, well, why are you saying you'll give me anything that I ask for if I asked for this thing and you didn't give it to me? Many of us, many of you I know, have prayed for somebody who is dying, prayed that God would save them. Many of you have prayed for somebody who didn't know God and prayed that he, would come, that he or she would come to know them, and you haven't seen it happen. Why, why would God not answer those prayers? When those things happen, it's hard to read verses like this. And because of experiences like this, pretty much all of us, I think, have developed some degree of an inner cynic. For some of us, that may be larger than others, but all of us, there's this inner cynical voice that just says, I don't think that's real. I don't think God's going to do that. Or even if you don't have those conscious thoughts, it shows in your actions that you don't pray more boldly and more often than you do. It's that same reason that I'm always immediately turned off by any promotion that starts with enter for a chance to win. And for me, that's just like, wow, what a waste of time. Enter for a chance. I don't want a chance to win. I want to win. I don't want a chance to win. What if I enter and I don't win? Then I just wasted that time, and I don't like wasting time. I just did work for nothing. I don't like doing work for nothing. I like doing work for results, for something. Why would I want to do that? How many of us think about prayer that way? You pray to God and you think, you know, I, I don't think this is likely, so why am I wasting my time? Why would I keep praying? It's just not likely, so why bother? So I've got three quick thoughts to that and then we'll wrap up. Number one, what we ask for and how we ask for it matters. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So when we ask for things selfishly, it's usually not God's will to grant those requests. What do I mean by asking for things selfishly? Things that prop us up at the cost of others. Things that deter our lives away from glorifying God. Uh, prayer requests that are greedy. Prayer requests that are idolatry. Things that we're so obsessed with this thing that we cannot recognize that God is God. So when we pray for those sorts of things, I, it's very easy to see through Scripture that those things would not be in God's will for us because those things are harmful for us. That'd be like us praying for a serpent or praying for a rock. Like, you don't need that. You need, you need food. You need life. Number two, the idea that unanswered prayers are a waste of time is wrong. The idea that if I pray to God and he does not grant my prayer request, that that was a waste of time, that's wrong. That's not true. Failed raffles are a waste of time. But God is not a raffle. Amen? God is not, this isn't some formula thing, this is a magic thing. We're not trying to manipulate God as Christians to give us what we want because we want God, amen? We want to know him. He is where true life is found. Everything else pales in comparison to him. And so the time we spend in prayer 
even if we don't get what we ask for, it draws us closer to him. And we, we start to become more like him. The, uh, when we pray to him, even if we ask for wrong things, he starts to shape our lives and shape our prayer requests. The, even if you're asking wrongly, it's at least you're asking. Asking wrongly is often the first step to asking rightly. The more time that we spend in prayer with God, the more we start to learn about his heart. Even if you look at Jesus' life, <clears throat> Jesus prayed before his crucifixion. You guys remember this? He prayed before his crucifixion that God would spare him, that there'd be any other way. He said, let this cup pass from me. Let this suffering that I'm about to experience pass. Let me not have to do this. And I would bet that Jesus knew better than anyone that there was no other way. And yet still he prayed. What can we learn from that? Don't stop praying. Keep asking James says you do not have because you do not ask. And if we keep asking and keep asking boldly, you may be surprised by the prayer requests that God does grant you. There was a season in my life where I thought so many prayer requests that I felt, so many desires that I had were too trivial to trouble God with. Why would he care? Why would he grant me this? If I'm, if I'm hurting, like, why would he not just leave this pain in my life that, that I would just grow through it somehow? And that's just... That's ridiculous. God loves you. He cares about you. He feels the pain that you feel. He, he empathizes in the same way that any parent would care about the smallest pain and hurt that their child has. Like that, that pains his heart to see us suffer. There was a time after I was in a, a bad car accident and I was missing teeth. Many of you remember that. And very freshly after that, I had exposed nerves up there and I had a schedule on the calendar to go in and get that dealt with, but the time wasn't yet. And I had pain medication to deal with the exposed nerve, but that ran out and the pain started dull, but then it got higher and higher and higher. And finally, one day I was driving in the car and the pain was just so bad. And I was just like, God, I just don't want to deal with this. Please take this away from me. And I just confess, I didn't have a lot of confidence that that was actually going to happen, but I was completely sincere completely just asking God, I just asked that you would. I had nowhere else to turn, nothing else to do in that moment about that pain. And immediately it left. And I was astonished. I was like, what? This, this is a little bit of a paradigm shift for me. I'm not used to prayer working this way, but that's how prayer works. So often I think maybe we don't realize how much of our prayers get answered because we just forget. We don't keep track. We just let them go. There's this uh, book on prayer uh, Praying Life by Paul Miller, and he just talks about recording his prayer requests and recording answered prayers, and he has journals later in his life, entire books filled with uh, just recordings of God's faithfulness and answers to, to so many of his prayers. What a beautiful thing to have of just a witness to God's interaction and presence in your life. Amen. And so that brings me to number three which is, did you notice how in all three of those verses, Jesus qualifies his statement by saying, whatever you ask in my name. What does that mean, in my name? I, th I think of two things to take away from that. First, Jesus is the reason that our prayers can come before the Father. Only because of Jesus can we approach the throne of God. Apart from Christ, we would be so seeped in sin, so covered in unrighteousness that we cannot even get close to the throne of God, not come anywhere near it. But because of what Jesus did for us, we can boldly bring our, our, uh, our needs, our prayer requests before the throne of God because he's dressed us in his righteousness through his death for us on the cross. Uh, in that same book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller compares it to 
um, being like a, a poor, dirty beggar in some old-fashioned monarchy outside the kingdom. And there's some guard at the castle, and he goes, and he's like, I want to see the king. And the guard's like, you're not going to go see the king. The king doesn't have time for you. But then imagine that the prince, the heir to the throne, comes in and lifts that beggar up by the hand and walks in with him and says, no, he's with me. That's what Jesus has done for you. Because, and, and you go in and you get cleaned up and you get to come and, and be in the presence of the king. That's what he's done for you. Because he has dressed us in his righteousness every single day, any moment, you can go and be in the presence of your God. And he hears your prayer request. So that's the first thing, praying in Jesus' name, that we pray our prayers reach God because of Jesus, not on our own merit, but because of his. Number two, uh, when we pray in Jesus' name, we admit that we don't know what to pray for. We don't know our own needs. That same verse I read before, Paul says in Romans 8, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So as we pray, over time, God is molding us through prayer to shape our prayers into prayers after his own heart and will. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, also what we're saying is, God, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know all of your will. I'm praying for this, but I, is this in your will? I don't ultimately know. I hope that it is because it seems like a good thing to me, but your will be done. And that's the submissively part, that we can pray boldly, but we also pray submissively. So asking God to do great things, but saying whatever it is, your will be done and show me that will. Amen? Bring me into your heart Grow in me your desires, your convictions, your passions, so that when I see the world, I would see it the way that you see it, and I would love it the way that you love it, and that my life would be poured out for the people around me, and that I would be a person who makes bold prayers, that we would be people who make bold prayers for our community, and long that God would fill us with, fill us with his heart so that we truly would be Christians or little Christs in the world, going around being the body of Christ to the people around us so that they could experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit living in us and say that they had some kind of encounter that was otherworldly, that was out of this world, that it was, it was, they were like, like they were in a holy place because through us, through God filling us with his spirit and his love and his power, they experienced God. Amen? So we pray, we find fellowship with God when we pray boldly and submissively. So to wrap it up, like I said before, knowing God is absolutely essential for true life. And prayer is absolutely essential for knowing God. So let's get busy praying or get busy dying. Amen? Let's work together, partner together to be people who pray throughout the day. Let's know and experience and find fellowship with God by praying without ceasing, by praying like a child, by praying ugly, and by praying boldly and submissively. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I ask again this morning that you would be turning our eyes, awakening us to see and know your glory. That we would know that you are a God worth knowing that we would find and experience the joy of knowing you. Lord, I pray that you would just help us have a praying life, that you would help us to find fellowship with you through prayer. Help us to experience abundant life that you have intended for us, God. And I just pray that we would know you through our prayers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.